All right. Good morning, New Hope. Um, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for the introduction, and um, it's a real privilege for, for Helen and I to, to be here this morning with you guys and to uh, just be, to be able to share a little bit about our work that, that we've been involved in over in Uganda. Uh, first, firstly, I, I want to actually start by thanking New Hope, because New Hope Church has supported the work of Tutapona for some time now, uh, and that's made a massive difference, uh, both financially and through prayer both of which are, are really, really important for the work that we do. So thank you so much as a church for, for the way that you've supported us. And what we'd like to do this morning is to give you an idea about what that work looks like, to give you some first-hand accounts of, uh, of the work that we're involved with, um, and also to communicate a little bit of our heart for this work to you. I also want to thank Kim and Ian for uh, actually coming over to visit us last year in Uganda. That's a, it's a very long way from here. And uh, I know you guys also gave up their time for them to come and see us. So thank you guys so much. M many, of you, many of you know us here, but I am conscious that there are some new faces and some people that may not have uh, heard Helen or I speak before or, or in fact met us. So to start with, I'd just like to introduce uh, our family. You, you may see our, our two daughters that are out in creche at the moment. They're called Hope and Eva. We've dressed around. them in matching outfits for your ease of reference today. <laughs> Easy to spot. And uh, so they're, they're with us, obviously, over there in Uganda. Uh, Hope is just coming up to three, and Eva is a little bit over one. So we're, we're um, very grateful to be their parents. And we've, we've been working and, and, uh, and living in Uganda now for three and a half? Yeah, no, three. Three, three years, uh, over, over quite a long period of time. We, we first went to Uganda in 2010 for a six-month visit. And then in 2014, we went back and actually started working for the organization that uh, I'm currently the, the Uganda country director for, which is called Tutapona. Um, Tutapona is a, I know it's a difficult name to pronounce, and it's often, I get a puzzled look when I, when I introduce myself as working for Tutapona. It's a Swahili word, and the word means uh, we will be healed. Um, and it's, as, as I talk a little bit more about the work, the, the reason behind that name will become more, more evident. So, um, could we just switch over to the next slide, please? I want to start on the, on the macro and, and give you a, a sense of why it is that, that Tutapona has set up an office in Uganda. Uh, many people here may not know a whole lot about Uganda. It certainly doesn't feature in our news very much in New Zealand. So, I want to give you a, a very quick, and bear in mind this is a, a, a skim, but a, a quick idea of why Tutapona has an office in Uganda. Over the past 20 years, since the, the 1990s, uh, Uganda has been inundated with refugees from, from surrounding countries. Uh, most of you here, I'm sure, would, would have heard of the, the Rwandan genocide, which happened in 1994. R Rwanda shares a border with Uganda, and many of the people affected by that horrible incident actually fled Rwanda and, and uh, went into refugee camps in Uganda. And a lot of those people, believe it or not, are still living in those refugee camps today, 20, a little bit more than 20 years on. There are people who, whose babies have been born in that camp, and all they've ever known is a refugee camp. That's, that's where they've been brought up. Following the, the Rwandan genocide and, and the, the um, devastation that that caused in the region, uh, a conflict started in, in a country directly to the west of Uganda, which is called the the democratic, well, it's not very democratic, Republic of the Congo. 
Um, that war started in 1996 and is still going today. It's, it's a very sporadic war. It starts and stops all the time, but there has pretty much continuously since 1996 been conflict in, in uh, the eastern DRC on the border with Uganda. This, this statistic always shocks me, and I try and keep statistics to a minimum because sometimes it's hard to get your head around them, but this one is, is an important one. In that conflict in the DRC, it's estimated reliably that about five million people have lost their lives, making it the biggest war anywhere in the world since World War II. Uh, it's, the, the scale of this conflict is, is incredibly big. And a large number of the people that have been affected by that war in different ways have, have fled and have, have settled in refugee settlements, also in Uganda. But it, it, it doesn't stop there, if that wasn't enough. Um, in 2013, the end of 2013, just, just before Helen and I actually moved to Uganda, there was a, a conflict that started across Uganda's northern border in the world's newest country called South Sudan. And that, that conflict has a, on, and, on and off been going since December of 2013 to, to the present day. Um, this year, that conflict has ramped up significantly. There, I was at a, a United Nations um, meeting in Kampala just before I flew back to New Zealand a, a, about a month ago. And the, the latest estimates are that in 2016, somewhere around 450,000 South Sudanese people crossed the border into northern Uganda and settled in refugee settlements across that region, making it actually the biggest refugee migration anywhere in the world in 2016, bigger than anything going on in the Middle East, in fact. The, the scale of all of these conflicts and, and refugee movements is very, very difficult to get your head around. But in, in total, right now, it's, it's thought that there's about 900,000 refugees, just, just short of a million people uh, inside Uganda's borders, settled in these various refugee settlements around the country. Helen took this, this photo that you can see, um, sorry, the, the, the one that was on two slides ago. You could just go back up two slides. Yeah, perfect. Uh, she took this photo in, in one of the South Sudanese refugee settlements. And did you want to talk into that one? I was just going to say, they, they can't build these things fast enough sometimes when a disaster happens. So literally, this was within two weeks of the disaster um, happening in the, and the war happening in South Sudan. And so you can literally see the construction of these tents as these people are arriving. And you've kind of got, if you can ima imagine, families flee together. So you've often got the grandmother sitting there with the entire family's luggage, like protecting it, um, while her uh, maybe daughter-in-law or daughter or son, often there's not many men around, the men have stayed behind to fight. Um, so, yeah, this is an example of one of those women just trying to collect some water. But water resources are really stretched. Food resources are extremely stretched. Sanitation is stretched for sure. I think there was like one... What was the stats on that? I'm not sure for, for toilets, but I know for water, there were people were getting about six litres of water per day. And, and uh, for, for... Everything. Hygiene, they're supposed to be getting somewhere around... 14 litres per day, so well, well under what the recommended amount is. Yeah. So all of these services are very, are very thin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so actually Ian and Kim came to a settlement uh, just like this one here when, when they visited last year, and um, I'm sure they can attest, as, uh, as we are, that it's, it's really um, striking. When, when you go there, it's very impactful. 
makes you thankful for the, the things that you have, that's for sure. Could, could we just go forward one slide, please? So this gives you a, a snapshot of some of the things I've been talking about. The 900,000 refugees in Uganda, biggest refugee migration in Africa. That says third biggest refugee crisis in the world. That's over the past few years, but like I said, in 2016, it was actually the biggest. And Tutapona, the, the organization we work for, currently has 25 Ugandan staff uh, working, de delivering our trauma rehabilitation program. And I'm just gonna talk into that a little bit now because that's the focus of what we do as, as an organization. That's, that's why we work in Uganda and what we're trying to do with this huge number of refugees that are, that are located right there. And I would just say that Tutapona really sees themselves as strategically positioned in a relatively safe country surrounded by pockets of war and poverty. So obviously there's poverty and there's still residual effects from the war in the north with the, the child soldiers and Joseph Kony, but we're really strategically positioned in Uganda to respond to this influx of refugees on all, on all borders. And so, so again, you, you might be sort of having the question in your mind, trauma rehabilitation, what's the, what's the reason behind that? Why do we focus on trauma rehabilitation? Just for, for a moment, I, I wanna talk you through the impacts of becoming a refugee and the reasons why people became refugees on the, on the people that, that flee. So uh, if any person that, that becomes a refugee has straight away gone through a significant amount of trauma, every one of them. They, the, the very definition of becoming a refugee means you're forced to flee your home. You have no choice, you, you're leaving for, for safety reasons. Normally they, they leave quickly. Normally they don't have a lot of warning and they make a decision fast, sometimes before they have time to go home to, go home to collect belongings. Sometimes they, they go direct from the fields. Uh, a lot of them take very few possessions with them. Many of these people don't have a lot of possessions to begin with, but, but a lot of them talk about having had to leave behind things that were valuable to them. They travel generally on foot, especially the ones that have come from South Sudan. The roads are often dangerous. They don't have enough money to pay for, for uh, buses or, or other forms of transport. So a lot of these people walk from their homes to the nearest border. Uh, I've talked to pe many people who've said that it, they've, they've walked for a week, sometimes more than a week, to get to, to wherever they're going. And many of them take children with them. Uh, Helen and I recently flew from Uganda to New Zealand, which we found traumatic enough, but it, it pales in comparison to walking for a week with, with young children. Uh, I just, I, I can't get my head around how, how difficult that would be. To make matters much, much worse, a lot of these people have lost loved ones, sometimes children who, who've died on the way, Sometimes they had to leave so suddenly they didn't know where family members were and they never can make contact with those people again. Uh, and sometimes they, they have witnessed family members being killed in the violence before they flee or, or, or as they travel. Uh, so the, the psychological impact of all of those things on, on these refugees is, is, uh, is very significant. These people have a, a huge amount of um, damage that's been done and, and they, it's debilitating. They struggle to, to live normal lives because of the past that they've experienced. The, the final thing I would say, and, and we, we struggled to know how much detail to go into with, with this kind of thing because it's, uh, it's graphic and it's um, confronting, but a, a lot of the, the people that we come across and that our Ugandan staff work with have experienced uh, sexual violence uh, and 
um, torture. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of hatred going on between the different groups involved in these wars. So not only is it the, the normal death that, that goes along with war, but it, it's often targeted to be as nasty as possible. Um, needless to say that the need is huge, both in terms of numbers uh, and also in terms of the, the, the psychological impact on, on many of these people that, that we come across. You should go to the next slide, please. This here is, a, is an image taken of one of our trainings. Um, I used to be a teacher uh, in, in a former life, and so if, if you like, I've switched the, the classroom of, of New Zealand for a, for a mango tree as, as our roof. Um, I, He's I upgraded. Don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually do uh, any teaching at the moment, but, uh, but our Ugandan staff do, do the, the delivery. They do a much better job than I could. They speak the language uh, of these, ref these various refugee groups, and they, they can connect much better culturally. But this is, this is the context of where the, the work is taking place. It's almost always outside, although sometimes in the refugee settlements they, they do construct uh, churches. It's one of the first things they build often. And so there are quite quite big buildings, sometimes very simple, but reasonably large buildings that we sometimes use for, for these trainings. Our typical training lasts last two weeks and uh, is, is delivered for about two hours per day to allow these refugees to carry on with the day-to-day the -day living that they need to do. So a lot of them are farmers, and they need to spend a lot of time in the field growing crops. Uh, but they, they take a couple of hours out often in the afternoon to come and attend our trainings and, uh, and, and hopefully benefit from that. Sometimes they run a bit late because they don't have watches, so they just look at the sun. And if the sun is hidden on a cloudy day, it can be a bit challenging to know if it's 3 o'clock or not. So that's always a constant uh, amusement for us. And it runs on Africa time, as, as Ian and Kim could, uh, could attest to. So, yeah, times are, times are flexible. Um, but the, the trainings are, uh, yeah, they're, they're designed to help people understand what is trauma, and many of them have, have not, uh, not understood that previously, and then to give people tools and strategies to, to overcome the, the psychological trauma that they've experienced. And we've been amazed that the impact of just a very short two-week course, uh, 20 hours of teaching um, in a group setting, not even one-on-one. -on -one. People that, that, that talk to us at the end of these trainings talk of huge relief, uh, huge change from, from this very simple uh, intervention that, that we're doing. Obviously, it, it doesn't completely remove the trauma that they've experienced. They've still gone through huge things that will affect them for a very long time. But it, people do talk about a, a significant increase in hope and a reduction in some of the symptoms of trauma, such as nightmares, flashbacks, sleeplessness, uh, low motivation at work, depression, suicidality, lot, lots of these things that can come out of trauma. The, the final thing I want to do, I've talked a lot in the macro, a lot about the context of the work and, and what we do. I just want to... Um, give you a, a quick story to, to help you understand one individual that, that we have worked with at, at Tutapona and how uh, her, her experiences have, have shaped her and then how she has been impacted by the program. If you can go to the, the next slide, please. Uh, this, this lady, we're going to call her Janet. She's, she's not called Janet, but we, we change uh, names for, for reasons of privacy. Helen took this image. It's an image that shows a lot of joy. 
It's an image that in, in this lady's face you can see true, um, uh, true uh, um, Christ-like joy, I, I believe. And when you hear her story, that, that, that will amaze you, that she can have joy in, in her circumstances. The, these are her words. She's 56 years old, by the way. My name is Janet. I come from Burundi. Several years ago, rebel soldiers came and killed my firstborn and my parents in front of me. Later, they returned and called my husband outside. They killed him and our two children that followed him. Then they burnt down our house. The only children who survived were the ones that were at school during the fire. We fled to Naka Valley Refugee Settlement, which is in southern Uganda, with only the cloth I was wearing. The most thing that traumatizes me is when I see fire. It reminds me of that day. I wanted to run, be mad, and not talk to anyone, but I thank God that I've got the best counselor, the Bible. My favorite verse is Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Because of Jesus, I have joy. It's a gift from God. Through the Tutapona program, I've learned a lot. When you sit with others and share your trauma, it loses its grip. It gets released. You don't need to focus on the problems. You focus on the future. I have hopes of seeing Jesus Christ when he comes back, and I pray hard that all of my children survive. The, the thing that amazes me, even having done this work now for a few years, is that people who have gone through things like Janet, uh, and there are many of these people, can experience uh, healing. They, they can, they're not beyond help. And the reason behind that is not because our staff are amazing at what they do. It's not because the, the, the training that we use is miraculous. The, the, the thing that I put that back to is that, is that Jesus cares about these people and he chooses to use small efforts that, that people take to transform people's lives. And he can do that with anybody, including people like the, the ones that we're talking about today. And that is, for me, extremely faith-building. Um, that God is powerful enough to, to do that. Uh, and I've seen that um, time and again. Finally, before I hand over to Helen, I just want to give you a one-minute snapshot about what next for Tutapona. What, what are we looking at in, in 2017 in, in the Uganda office of Tutapona? I'm extremely excited about this coming year. Um, I... I um, I'm really looking forward to what 2017 is, has got for us. We, we're going to, to be expanding our work into a, another refugee settlement, specifically for South Sudanese people, to try and meet some of this huge uh, need that, that's come about from the influx of refugees from South Sudan. We're also going to continue working in the, the, one, the existing refugee settlements where we're established, uh, working with Congolese and, and Rwandese people in the south and, and the, uh, the west of Uganda. And we're very motivated to, to continue this work, to do it to the best of our ability. And just finally, I want to say once again, thank you very much for New Hope's support to allow us at Tutapona to continue to do this work. We, we rely on financial support um, and prayer support in order to, to continue with this work. And I can assure you that we'll be doing our very best to maximize those resources and, and uh, help as many people with them as we can.
So um, one of the things that you may be thinking in your mind is it's awesome that Tutapon is in Uganda. That's fabulous. I didn't know Uganda had so many problems. But what about what I'm seeing on TV at the moment? What about the Syrian refugees? What about the people in Iraq outside their doorstep is the Battle of Mosul? And if we can go to the next slides, I will tell you. So on December 22nd, uh, 2015, Tim and I got a call from the founders of Tutapona, a couple called Carl and Julie Gady, and they said to us, um, so you know how we had planned for you guys to come and live in Imbarara and, um, you know, do program director roles? Well, instead, we've changed our minds. Uh, we've been to Iraq and we've seen what a... Um, what a massive opportunity there is there, and we'd like to move to Iraq, and can you guys, well, Tim, take on the role of country director and live in Kampala? So in May of 2016, this, this past year, they moved to Iraq as a family, and they set up work in a place called Dehuk. It's 40 miles out of Mosul. Um, so they've literally got smoke billowing onto their balcony as they um, sit out there and eat their dinner from the battle that's going on. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Mosul, Mosul is a place where ISIS kind of calls it their their headquarters, and they've overtaken that city, and currently many governments and uh, the UN and a lot of people are trying to recapture Mosul for good. Um, so there are 5.5 million people of concern in Iraq as a whole. Now that isn't just people from Mosul, there's only about a million in Mosul still trapped there, but that's people, IDPs, which means internally displaced people, in a nutshell, there's a lot of people that need a lot of help. Um, Carl and Julie are working with former ISIS captives literally 24 to 48 hours after being released out of these places. So I'm going to share with you some Facebook messages in a second between Julie and myself. But um, one of the things she told me on the phone was that what happens when someone is recaptured out of Mosul or um, they're brought back, say they were a sex slave working, um, working for these ISIS guys, their families often can raise enough money to buy them back or they are recaptured by military. So a raid takes place and they're rescued that way. But their first port of call is always, of course, a medical facility, a doctor or you know someone to check them out. Second port of call is actually psychological. And that's where Carl and Julie are strategically working with people like Samaritan's Purse and the A21 campaign, uh, as well as the Refuge Initiative to be those first responders. So yeah, people 24, 48 hours out. And actually, it's, it's a little bit sad. She was saying that then they see their families and that's a wonderful, um, you know, if they can trace them, they find their families and they have a wonderful reunion and lots of tears and happiness and never thought we'd see you again. But she said within three months, often many of them are wanting to take their own lives again. And she's like, they're just overcome by the trauma that they have experienced. So to be able to offer for the first time psychological support it seems like a good place to be positioned. They've hired seven staff so far, and they're working in two sites. I'm actually going to be going there in about eight weeks' time, or less now, um, to do a photography and storytelling trip there. So I'll be sure to share some of those stories with um, mum and dad so that they can share them back here so you can see where some of that money's going. But this is just a little excerpt from Julie. Um, you can flick to the next slide. Um, she said to me this, 
Helen, I would love prayers for wisdom and strength. It's so overwhelming to hear all of that people are going through. So raw, so twisted. My little heart is breaking. I'm running a course with women and girls who are ISIS captives and sex slaves, and all of them still have sons, daughters, husbands, family, and captivity. I'm also doing individual counseling with people, most of whom are falling down or faint daily due to trauma. They're suicidal, extremely depressed, and hopeless. And I struggle with feeling I've got nothing to offer, nothing apart from him and me. Of course, we know the only true hope, but are limited in ways I know you understand. Yesterday, I came home from a full day and had to crawl into bed at 9 p.m. out of exhaustion. I sit weekly with women, young and old, who were in captivity, waiting and daily crying out for their family members still there. I pray with them and they're thankful. Yesterday, one woman said to me, and these women are mainly Muslim, through your prayers, we got our Jervine back. We need you to keep praying so we get our others home. Anyways, she emailed me a few weeks later and said to me, God is healing in amazing ways, Helen. 21 women just returned. The mothers say to me, it's because of your prayers. A miracle. I gave them some tools, but most importantly, prayed with them and he answered. Um, yeah, so that's what's happening in Iraq. Um, but we'll end on a personal note because I know that, um, yeah, sometimes it's good to hear the personal side where... Wait, yeah, let's uh, flick to that slide. So I thought I'd just recap the family for you and what's been going on with us. I would say overall, 2016 was a really challenging year, but a good one in the end. Um, it was an exhausting year, uh, for sure. Tim uh, was studying his master's in international development. He also managed to get malaria twice, uh, followed by a nice bout of pneumonia. So that was really not my favorite month of the year. Um, I remember in one day alone, actually it was within one hour of that particular day, Tim was sitting inside a hospital in the middle of Kampala. He's got an IV line in his arm and he's fielding three phone calls in one hour. The first phone call was to say that rebel fighting had broken out in Gulu and we had approximately 10 volunteers up there and they were all stressing and needed to get out now now. He got a second phone call to say that a 30,000 US dollar land cruiser had been written off. Ouch. And then he got a third phone call, um, a, a staff vehicle. Then he got a third phone call to say that some interns from the office for the prime minister had arrived at our office in Nacho Valley Refugee Settlement and were there to serve. We had not requested them. Uh, they were not welcome. But we tried to send them back and the office for the PM said no. And they wanted to sit in on our counseling sessions. And Tim's got malaria. <laughs> so that was quite a challenging moment. Um, but he's thrilled to be in New Zealand. Uh, I can say as his wife, he is thrilled to be here. Mainly to have fish and chips and to satisfy <laughs> that hunter-gatherer within him that likes to fish and hunt. Um, I have been uh, working, continuing to work for Tear Fund New Zealand, uh, doing field communications for them. So mainly photography and storytelling, writing. I had a rat in my bed this year. That was a highlight. Um, Tim was away. Eva was next to me. A rat was curled up around her head. Um, and uh, we met up with our sponsor child, Willifred. Many of you sponsored children through Compassion and Tear Fund here. Um, I also did a security training workshop where I was, as part of a training, uh, kidnapped 
And um, she did put on Facebook that she had been kidnapped <laughs> without saying the training part. I did say that. I felt she like I did. She added it on later. I did. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that was that was really interesting. Four days where you or three days where you are trained in how to respond in extreme, like I guess, risk countries like Iraq. So tips like. Don't walk on the same side of the road as the traffic is flowing because they can open their door van and sneak you inside. And where do you sit in a restaurant if there's a, you know, to be, to be safe for a, a bomb going off? Those kinds of things. So that was really interesting, actually. Um, also, mum and dad visited and my grandpa, my grandpa visited, which was wonderful. And, um, yeah, Hope, our little Hope is almost three years old. Uh, she started preschool and she's going two mornings a week. She's now fully adopted, which is an absolute miracle. Um, so, yeah, if any of you prayed for that here, I'm not sure if you did, but um, if any of you did hear about that, I really thank you for praying and caring about our family. She's got three best friends, and she sees them all at least once a week, but most of them daily. And she loves the trampoline and her inflatable pool. Um, Eva, on the other hand, is 14 months Eva's actually lived about 80% of her life in Africa, and she loves it. Uh, the other day, we found her playing with a snake skin in our garden. Uh, we found her lighting matches in the kitchen. Um, we found her with a wasp that she had caught in her bare hands. And when I, she's screaming, and I was like trying to pry open her hand, and there's this wasp going, <laughs> and a stinger in there. Um, she likes to collect toilet rolls and put them inside the toilet bowl and shut the lid. <laughs> she drinks pee from Hope's potty, which is disgusting. Um, and most recently on a flight, she escaped up to first class. I, it would have been over 10 times and would steal little things and bring them back to coach. <laughs> Um, but finally, uh, before we hand over to mum for the rest of the, the part, um, I'd say we're more excited than ever before to be heading back to Uganda. We did a big debrief the other day, just doing some self-care. Um, and I just feel like both of us are so encouraged by the work that we individually do there. Um, and yeah, we're really grateful to have New Hope Church behind the organization Tutapona and um, behind us, supporting us in this. And yeah, we're really grateful. So thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Some of you guys have got perceptions in your own minds about what missionaries do. <laughs> You've heard today, Matthew 25, 40 says, whatever you do to the least of these... You're doing it to me, Jesus Christ. And this gave you a very accurate picture of what some real-life missionaries do. Well, I'd encourage you afterwards to just take a moment and catch up with Helen and Tim. If there's any questions you've got, they'll be, I'm sure, very glad to hear from you and um, take your questions. Kimberly, you all good to go? Oh, you want to push the button? Here we go. Sorry. Push the button, and can you hear me? Okay. So now you know the truth about my grandchildren. <laughs> you know everything that goes on. Okay, welcome to 2017. Sounds as though when Tim and Helen were talking that they needed some encouragement and that's going to be the topic of my message this morning. Have you ever had one of those days when you think, man, do I need some encouragement here? It's been a tough day at work, 
somebody's got mad at me, possibly something simple like your car's got a dead battery, that happened to me the other day, you can't get inside your house, you've locked yourself out, you're climbing in a window, or possibly even worse, your girlfriend's broken off with you. So where do you go to get encouragement from? What I do, I often go to the library, get a book out. Maybe you watch a movie, you think, oh, I'll just watch this movie and that'll give me the encouragement that I need. Or maybe you go to a conference, like the Willow Creek Conference. Yeah, that's full of encouragement, isn't it? So, can you recall some encouraging words that somebody has told you? Yeah? You? How did they make you feel? Did it brighten your day? Yeah, when somebody gives you encouragement? Did it maybe give you a new sense of purpose or joy? Yeah, when somebody says that I look nice, I feel pretty good. What about hope for the future? Did those encouraging words give you a sense of hope? Maybe it made you feel more special or effective in what you do. Maybe the encouraging words challenged you to do things in a new way. Maybe strength for a goal that you've had, or maybe to take risks to do something different. I wonder how those encouraging words affected you. This morning, I'm going to bring to you from the book of First and Second Thessalonians, the most encouraging words, the most significant words that I have ever read. And you can go back and read in First and Second Thessalonians these same words. You don't have notes with you this morning. I know this is very unusual, and you hope normally Ian does a wonderful outline, but I have had all my family living with me this week, and I have had no time to do you an outline. So if you would like to go back home, you can get your Bible out and read First and Second Thessalonians and everything I've said is right in there. So that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. This type of encouragement I'm going to offer you has the possibility of sustaining you and giving you fresh energy. No, it's not the Jenny Craig diet or something else like that, or paleo or eating low fat, but it's the energy that comes from the sharing of the Apostle Paul. You know, have you ever watched a movie and it's full of problems and stresses? Like my husband makes me watch these movies. You have born identity, born supremacy. <laughs> I am stressed out watching them. He's so different. I would rather watch a chick flick. That's much nicer. But if you notice when you watch those movies, there's trials, there's problems. You're sitting on the edge of your seat thinking, what is going to happen? Is this guy going to get out of it? Are things going to turn out okay? Well, do you know what? The Apostle Paul in the book of First and Thessalonians has this amazing words of encouragement. He tells us things are going to turn out okay, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. When Paul opens his letter to the Thessalonian church, which is in Macedonia, He's actually talking to a church that has been through lots of problems and stress, a bit like these victims of war that Helen and Tim have been talking to. They are suffering persecutions, they're suffering trials, and there's a lot of stuff going on within their life. So what he wants to do is give them this encouragement that they so desperately need to keep their faith going. I don't know about you guys, but 
Are there times in your life where you think, man, I feel like a popped balloon. I really need some encouragement in my life, especially as a Christian. Well, what does he do? The first thing he does is he says, he opens his letter, peace to you all, but he says, in the name of God the Father. And I thought, well, that's a cool opening. You know, he just doesn't talk about God, but God the Father. Doesn't that brings a sense of warmth and identity? Our God is not just a God or many gods or a God that's distant, but he's God the Father. I, th- I love the way that he opened up that letter. This would give the Christians there a sense, well, my God is God the Father. Then he says to them, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Then Paul went on a little bit further and he said to them, you know, I delight in you as a church. He tells them that you've grown in your faith, your love for one another is growing, a bit like our church. Aren't we? We're growing, we are learning in, in in, in our faith. And he says, but best of all, you've embraced the message that I have told you. You've embraced the message of the gospel, and that's what gave Paul the most joy in his heart, is this church who'd suffered a bit like that woman that Helen showed up on the picture. She had a joy in her face. She'd embraced the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with this bit of encouragement at the start that he offers So what is this encouraging news that the Apostle Paul is going to offer them? What's the most encouraging news that you've heard? This is what he hints at right at the start of the first chapter. He says, the Lord is coming back. Whoa. He then goes on to say, this Lord Jesus that you've accepted, he's coming back. Not only is it, why is he coming back? Because he rose from the dead. Therefore, we will rise from the dead. He is alive and he's coming back for us. But then the story gains more momentum. He says, you know, he's not just going to arrive, he's coming with blazing fire. I mean, what do you reckon about that? Then he says he's coming with his powerful angels. The story gets wilder. Then we'll hear the speak of the voice of the archangel and a trumpet sound. You know, when somebody's coming into town, maybe President Barack Obama, he arrives over at the airport. I don't think he arrives with a trumpet sound or the voice of an archangel. You know, when Jesus is coming back, everybody's going to know. It's not the birth, the meek and mild Jesus coming at Christmas time where, yes, there's an announcement by angels, but it's a quiet event. No, this second coming, it's going to be an event of epic proportions. No one's going to miss it. So he said to them, encourage each other with these words, all through your trials and your persecutions and your difficulties. Encourage each other. The Lord is coming back. What else is going to happen? Well, the dead are going to rise first. And this is where the story gets really wild. You are going to meet with the Lord in a mighty reunion 
not at the school hall. Do you know where the Bible says we're going to meet him? In the clouds. Okay, that's wild. You have to cope with a lot of wild things this morning. But believe me, when you live in a wild place like these refugees, you want a wild outcome, believe me. So, you know, when I think of a reunion, I don't think in the clouds. You know, have you ever been invited to a school reunion? I have. I went to Pakaranga College and at our school reunion, we were going to meet with each other, we were going to talk and some of us were going to eat and, you know, catch, catch up. Well, I don't think I could beat that one. You know, you can't say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to attend. When us Christians meet the Lord, everybody's going to attend. You know, Nee and Grant, they're not with us this, this, this morning. They've got a family reunion, which they've just uh, attended. Their family was so big, they had a hundred of them, and they stayed in a resort. I mean, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? You know, you stay in a resort, you chat with all of your family, but Paul's telling them, this reunion, we're going to meet in the clouds. The dead are going to rise first. That's way out there. You know, there's a website, and some of you like to research your family's history. It's called Genes Reunited. No, this is Christians Reunited. And he said these words to bring them hope. I think it will be the most outrageous party ever. You know, my son Nathan's getting married next week on Wednesday. They have invited people to an event. They're going to say their wedding vows up on Bleak House Road. They're going to go to a reception out at Whitford. But we won't be able to pull off quite the family gathering, as Paul's talking about here, a reunion in the clouds with a trumpet sound and the voice of an archangel. So why does he say these words? He says, therefore, do not grieve as people who have no hope. You will see your loved ones again. Whoa. Our certain promise is spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus. And in other words, being to, together with other believers. That's a way out there promise. You know, you can sometimes think, this is all the life that I have, but Paul was trying to tell them there is another life and you can spend eternity with those that you love. I have a sign on our, I have a big picture on our lounge wall and it says, together again with all my kids lined up. That's what this reunion is going to be like, together again. You know, I have a brother who died at 23. I have a mother and a mother-in-law who are all in heaven. Won't that be an amazing reunion, amazing promise? I will see them again. You know, I, I had the most unusual meeting just before I went to see Helen and Tim in Uganda. I went to get my hair cut. I wanted it done quick, so I took a fast option and went to a Asian gentleman along Botany Road who cut my hair. Well, as he started to trim it, I just said, can you please trim it? He started to tell me his story. I've never been to have a hairdresser like this, but he started to tell me the story. He said, Kimberly, I was married for 30 years and I was not very kind to my wife. In fact, I was critical of her and judgmental of her. And I'm so ashamed to actually tell you this now because 
she got cancer recently. And as he was talking, he's actually crying and weeping. And I was sitting there, oh my goodness, what do I do, what do I say? And he, was, and he said, you know, I didn't love her as I should. And, and she got cancer. And then I suddenly realised what a jerk I'd been. How, what sort of husband I had actually been. And when, and when she got cancer, he said, I then found it a privilege to love her. When she soiled her underwear or she needed a shower, she was vomiting, he said, please let me do this for you. He finally found the love he should have had for her as it was almost too late. But, you know, we have hope as Christians when we reunite with the Lord, when he's coming back. If you've missed it this time and you haven't loved, possibly you can think of circumstances like I can. Gosh, I didn't love my brother the way I should have. I didn't love my mom at times the way I should have and certainly didn't love my mother all the times that I should have. But, you know, you have a second chance. You can love again. You have eternity to love again, together again. So what do we believe? What did he want these Christians to know? We believe that Jesus died, rose again, right? The second coming will come suddenly like a thief and we don't need to grieve. We have hope. The promise of a reunion, a promise of eternal life, a promise of hope. So my question to you this morning as I just finish is what does this anchor of hope, he's coming back, I'm going to be together with you. What does that mean? What does that bring to us? Well, would it cause us to take more risks? He's coming back, I know the end of the story, don't need to sit on the edge of my seat. Would it change the way I live? Would it change it? Maybe I would be more bold in sharing the gospel. Maybe I'd be more radical and lavish with my love for one another. Maybe I'd be more radical in what I give of my resources. Maybe I'd allow myself to be a bit embarrassed at work, a bit more in the firing line for speaking up and who I believe in, that I believe in God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe I'd be willing to suffer unjustly. Maybe I'd be willing to suffer a little rejection because I believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul certainly was that man, wasn't he? He believed it was worth it. He believed it was worth the cost. You know, when you receive that type of encouragement, do you think it gives you courage? I find when people have said words to me, that encouragement has resulted in giving me courage. I want to read to you a quote by Martin Luther King. He said, Courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But one must take it because it's right. My question, 2017, do you think it's worth it? Now that we know that he's coming back, do you think it's worth it? This reassurance was the whole point of Paul's message to the Thessalonians. He's coming back. We will be reunited. You know, we win. That's cool. Watching the born identity, I had no idea who was going to win. But we win. I can never lose you. 
you may want to lose me. <laughs> I'm sure my husband would like to lose me. But I'm sorry, you're not going to lose me. <laughs> Everybody, we are going to be together forever. That's kind of cool because we, my husband and I started this church. It was sad when people left. I must confess I was a sook. I felt like my arm had been cut off. But you know what? I'm not going to lose you. You are not going to lose me. We are going to be together. Death will never separate us. We will be together as Christians, together with him forever. So what do we have as a summary? Jesus came at Christmas to save us. What did he save us from? Not a very nice thing to talk about, but he saved us from God's wrath. Then he died to pay the penalty for my sin and yours, taking God's anger at our sin away. Justice done. Sin is paid for. We're declared not guilty before God. Now I'm in his family. The gift of eternal life is ours. So when he comes in all his glory, we will be together. Some of you may think, I don't know if I want to be together with that person. <laughs> so there's this process that God's going to make us holy, sanctified before we get there. So things won't look quite like they are down here. Our families will get along. Everybody's going to be able to really enjoy one another. We'll be sanctified. Things will be good. We will be together with him. So maybe if these words have been encouraging for you for 2017, as the apostle wanted them to so desperately be to the Thessalonians, he's coming back together again. You can love again. Maybe just close in prayer and maybe you'd like to pray with me. Father, our Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we thank you for your gift of Jesus that has saved us. We thank you that you're coming back. Lord, that this is going to be an incredible reunion. Father, I pray indeed for each one of us sitting here, and although, Lord, we may be few in number here today, but I ask that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you gave your Spirit that we might live. You gave your Spirit to fill us with energy and power. May your Spirit fill every one of us this morning. Lord, as we launch into 2017, relying upon you to fill our hearts with your purposes and your plans. Empower every person here, I pray. Encourage their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.